Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. We'll continue forward in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5 now. I'll be reading from verse 32 of chapter 4 through to verse 16 of chapter 5. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So last week we looked together at the example of Joseph Barnabas, a good man, a leader amongst this local church there in Jerusalem. And he led by example, selling his land and laying all the money there at the apostles' feet. By doing so, he strengthened the church. He encouraged the weak and the strong alike through his behavior. And he has set out for us as a man to study and to emulate. We should all want to be more like Barnabas. God strengthens his church through the faithfulness of this man. And we'll see more of him as we make our way through the book of Acts. And as is often the case, the strongest lessons from Scripture are made via contrast. Today, Luke takes us into the story of these anti-Barnabas scoundrels, this scoundrel duo, as I'll call them. This married couple takes counsel together against God and his church, a very discouraging action, harmful to the church, meant to cause themselves to be built up. Really, it would be something to tear down the church. But you see, God's eye is not dimmed, nor is his arm shortened. God still strengthens his church in spite of their unfaithfulness. So the question comes to us, does it not, for each of us as we listen to the sermon today, what kind of influence do you have on God's church? Does God strengthen his church via your faithfulness? Or does God strengthen his church in spite of your faithfulness? Will the Lord hold up your life as an example to follow or as a cautionary tale to avoid? It's very straightforward. Do you want to be like Barnabas or do you want to be like Ananias and Sapphira? Commentary says, The disciples were very holy and heavenly and seemed to be all exceedingly good, but there were hypocrites among them whose hearts were not right in the sight of God, who when they were baptized and took upon them the form of godliness, denied the power of godliness and stopped short of that. There is a mixture of bad with good in the best societies on this side of heaven. Tares will grow among the wheat until the harvest day comes. So in today's Sermon, the title is The Danger of Lying to God. We need to see how serious a thing it is to be a Christian, how serious a thing it is to come together amongst the people of God and to live together in holiness before God. We'll see their premeditated falsehood and we'll see that God deals with Ananias and we'll see the result. There's great fear, appropriately so. And then we'll see Sapphira shows up and God deals with Sapphira. And then the result of that is great fear, and appropriately so. And then some questions for us, some principles to consider for our lives, for us here today. So, first, their premeditated falsehood. A certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So these two church members, Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, a couple, 
taking vows not only to one another but to this local church, agreed together in, in private to carry out this act of public dishonesty. Instead of giving all of the proceeds, they decide to keep some back for themselves and only give a certain part of the proceeds to the church. They take this part and they lay it at the apostles' feet, giving the appearance giving the appearance of being like Barnabas and other faithful church members, they're both really playing the hypocrite. And soon their two bodies will lay there at the apostles' feet where they laid this lie. Where did this event occur? It likely occurred in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. We've looked at this before, which is where the whole church is meeting in verse 12. It's likely that's where they are now. It was a colonnade along the eastern wall of Herod's temple complex. And there's a a drawing of it, what it likely looked like there in your sermon notes. And you can see kind of there in the printout on that eastern far wall, Solomon's porch was that colonnade that stretched almost the entire length of the eastern wall of Herod's temple complex. And you can see it was contiguous with the court of the Gentiles It was a very large space that included both covered and uncovered space there with the court of the Gentiles in Solomon's porch. And this is where they would meet. Commentary says about Ananias and Sapphira, they were ambitious of being thought eminent disciples and of the first rank when really they were not true disciples. They would pass for some of the most fruitful trees in Christ's vineyard when really the root of the matter was not found in them. They cared more about what others thought than what God thought. And they thought that, like others, God didn't care what was going on and couldn't see what was going on inside of them. They were so terribly deceived. So how does God deal with Ananias? The text tells us, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So Peter, an apostle filled with the Holy Spirit, is miraculously made aware of the truth of the situation. God does not allow Peter to be deceived. One who had just a few months earlier, remember Peter, had lied and lied and lied. But now God gives him the truth miraculously. Next we see that Satan is involved in this effort to harm Christ's church. The devil, the prince of the forces of darkness, is the one who initiated this scheme. The devilish schemes, they take many shapes. This is one of the most common bringing in pretenders to harm the church. Satan had entered Judas just a few months earlier. You recall we saw that in the book of Luke. Satan was very active trying to destroy God's church. He had lots of plans to harm the church and to harm God's people. But the good news is Satan always fails in these efforts, even when it looks like he succeeds. Barnabas was filled with the Spirit, And Ananias was filled with the devil. Remember what happened in Luke 22. 
Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Commentary tells us Satan is the supernatural power of evil opposed to God and here the evil counterpart to the Holy Spirit. Peter confronts Ananias with the query why he allowed Satan to fill his heart. The term heart denotes here the driving force behind the voluntary endeavors of an individual. The motivation behind Ananias' action was not the Holy Spirit and God, but Satan who filled his heart. I doubt Ananias sat down and had a conversation with the devil over tea and whether Ananias even realized what had happened to him. But we know what happened to him. Next, we need to note that lying to the church is here equated with lying to the Holy Spirit of God. This is very important for those in our world today who have lost an understanding of the dignity of the church of the living God. Brothers and sisters, God loves his church. God indwells his church. God identifies with his church. He calls his church his body. And to mistreat his church is to mistreat Christ himself. Commentary says Peter emphasizes that lying to the community of believers is always lying to the Holy Spirit, who is God's presence in the community. The notion that one could deceive the Holy Spirit is ludicrous. Nobody can deceive God's Spirit, since the almighty and omniscient God cannot be manipulated. When we draw together in covenant unity as the church of the living God, duly brought together by His Word and Spirit, God is in our midst. God is in our midst. We are in His midst. This should be greatly comforting to us, and it should also bring great fear into our hearts as well. Our God is a consuming fire, brothers and sisters. Next, we see there was no obligation upon Ananias and Sapphira to sell their possession. It was their own to do with as they saw fit. This reality denies the idea that the Bible somehow teaches ecclesiastical or political socialism. The biblical principle of personal property is upheld in these verses. Commentary says Peter's fourth question reminds Ananias that he had the right of ownership over his piece of land. The sale of personal possessions was clearly voluntary. So don't ever believe that this text somehow preaches that the church or the state has the authority to take your money and make you spend it a certain way. Christian socialism, ecclesiastical socialism, political socialism that denies personal property is unbiblical. Next. Even though Satan had filled Ananias, we see here, listen now, this man was still culpable for his own actions. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. That won't fly. That excuse will never pass. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? is what Peter said to him. You have not lied to men, but to God. Who lied? Ananias. Who conceived it in his heart? Ananias. 
Was the devil behind it? Yes. Was Ananias responsible? Yes. Ananias' own sin conceived this evil. Satan did a lie to the apostles. Ananias did. Neither the actions of demons, listen, neither the actions of demons or of other men can serve as an excuse for our own sin. It's one of the most common things you probably will hear come out of your own mouth or out of your kids' mouths or out of the mouths of others. But so and so, but so and so. That's why Jesus tells us to take the plank out of our own eye first. We're so quick to want to blame others for our own sin. Commentary says, while the first question ascribes the deception to Satan, the last question asserts the personal culpability of Ananias. This corresponds to Paul's understanding of sin. While sin is the result of Adam's fall in the past, controlling the behavior of all human beings, nevertheless, every human being is personally responsible for his or her own sinful actions. Now, the text does not tell us how Ananias died in terms of the force that caused him to die. We don't know. But the context certainly strongly suggests that the holy God, the creator, and the sustainer of life killed him. And it doesn't appear to be a miracle worked through Peter by God. Brothers and sisters, God is holy. He doesn't owe any explanations to anyone. If you don't like what he did here, the problem is with you, not with God. Every new breath that we have is from God. Every new heartbeat we have is an unearned blessing. And certainly, along with many lessons, this text teaches each and every one of us to be ready to die. And particularly, be ready to drop dead suddenly. Don't think that you're going to have a chance to make things right with the people in your life or with God. You might not be granted that opportunity. You might just drop dead. Commentary says, Peter does not utter a word of judgment, nor do his words condemn Ananias to death, nor does he express a wish that he would die. However, as the apostle had just blamed Ananias for lying against God, and, has he, and as he has unmasked Ananias' heart as being driven by Satan, Ananias' sudden death must be understood as God's judgment. As Peter laid bare Ananias' heart and stated his rebellion against God, Ananias' heart gives out. Whether he died of a heart attack, induced by the public exposure of his deceit in front of the apostles and perhaps in front of thousands of believers in Solomon's portico, or whether his death has supernatural causes, timing of his death certainly is the result of divine judgment. Now certainly we can't say that every person who just drops dead is an example of God's judgment. But in this case, I agree with this commentary. We need to take this as an example of God's judgment. So what is the result here? Well, it's as you would expect. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. The people terrified and rightly so it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God what could be more terrifying than knowing that God sees you 
This is what God had accomplished in the midst of this church. What could be more terrifying than knowing that God sees you and that God knows you and that God may very well kill you if you lie to him or lie to his church? Who would not be afraid? You'd be a fool not to be afraid. Then and now. You'd be a fool to not be afraid. Then and now. I'll remind you, this is a New Testament verse. So often we hear, oh, that's the Old Testament God. You see, God has not changed, brothers and sisters. Great fear should also come upon us when we hear these kinds of things. Does Christ love his church less today than then? Does Christ identify less with us as his body now than then? Is harm against his church less now against him than it was then? Is his knowledge dimmed? Is his arm shortened? Brothers and sisters, the New Testament God is no different than the Old Testament God. His grace and his judgment in a healthy church, what we see here, in a healthy church, God's grace and his judgment always coexist. And this should be comforting to true believers. God is the one who looks after his church. Praise be to God. Commentary says, here the term fear does not denote reverent awe in view of God's greatness, but the frightful apprehension that if such a thing could happen to Ananias, who had been willing after all to sell his property and donate presumably a large sum to the community, then it could happen to anyone. The reference to great fear also implies that whatever the medical cause of Ananias' death, it caused much more than the uneasiness that an expected death often evokes in other people. Ananias' death confronted them with the reality of the holy God who hates sin and judges sinners. Ananias is then buried by the church. And this is a, a mark of kindness and, and a mark of forgiveness and gentleness. The young, man, young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. They had respect for his body. The church treats this dead man who had lied to God and his church. They treat his body with respect. There's no evidence he was derided or mocked in his death. He's not left out for the birds and dogs. He's buried. Commentary says, They wound up the dead body in grave clothes, carried it out of the city, and buried it decently, though he died in sin and by an immediate stroke of divine vengeance. Now, this is certainly one of those texts that makes us consider our lives, does it not, brothers and sisters? If this text can't cause you to stop and consider your own life, and something is very wrong with your soul. Every one of us needs to take this kind of text very personally. This isn't just a warning for others. Each one of us should take this as a warning for ourselves. What happens next? God deals with Sapphira as well. 
Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So somehow Sapphira, the wife, is yet to hear of her husband's death three hours later. Why she wasn't with him to begin with is also a bit of a mystery. But in any case, she arrives, still coddling their little lie and still holding to her pride and her haughtiness that somehow she can get away with this. And Peter gives her an opportunity to repent. He asks her a question. He asks her if the money presented to the apostles was the full amount. Instead of repenting, she goes on confidently, lying, sure that no one knows she's lying. How bold liars can be. We don't live just under the sun. There's a God in heaven and He sees all things and it is only His kindness and His, good, and His goodness that He doesn't strike us all dead. Do you understand that? You're not alive today because of some act of goodness that you've done to, to earn God's favor. God keeps us each alive according to His own kindness. Kindness. And for those of us who are in Christ, we can rejoice that all of our sins are covered by Christ and that He forgives us and that He has mercy upon us. And even when we're faithless, He is faithful. He covers our sins with the blood of Christ. God's grace and God's judgment are always present in the midst of of a healthy community. Commentary says, Ananias and his wife agreed to tell the same story and the bargain being private and by consent kept to themselves, nobody could disprove them and therefore they thought they might safely stand in their lie and should gain credit to it. It is sad to see those relations who should quicken one another to that which is good, actually harden one another in that which is evil. So yes, there's a word here today for married couples. We'll get to that. Now, earlier their sin was described by Peter as lying to the Holy Spirit. Here we learn more. There's more to this sin. Their sin was also, we're told, a testing of the Holy Spirit. It's as if they were daring God to act against them. Commentary says, Peter asserts that the couple's sin was not only deception, perhaps based on the selfish desire to increase their prestige and standing in the congregation, but also arrogance. They believed that they could behave in a manner clearly not sanctioned by God and get away with it. God doesn't care. God doesn't see, and if he does, he's not going to do anything to me here today. How often have you said that to yourself? This was a willful sin. This was known sin. 
You know, we can be wayward and we can be ignorant. You know, the ignorance is when we sin and we don't, we're not really aware of what's happening. The wayward are those who know they're sinning. They know what they're doing is wrong. And part of what you have to believe to do that is he won't kill me today. <clears throat> don't presume on God's grace, brothers and sisters, in that kind of way that tramples on the blood of Christ. So before you're going to sin, right before you're going to sin, you say, well, he'll forgive me. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be, brothers and sisters. That's the kind of nonsense where, you know where I'm going with this. That's the kind of nonsense we hear over and over again. Where? At the doors of death over in Augusta. Right before those women walk in to kill their own babies. Well, God will forgive me. I wonder if those thoughts crossed the mind of Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, they were, they were testing the Holy Spirit. Now, unlike with Ananias, Peter announces her death to Sapphira. He tells her what's coming. She's got a quick minute to make things right with God. You see, aware of God's judgment upon Ananias, Peter now has understanding of God's plan, and perhaps also it was revealed to him miraculously. So via the death of this scoundrel duo, God will bring great fear upon his church. The money lying at the apostles' feet is nothing compared to these two dead bodies to bring fear and power before the eyes of the people. Commentary says, as Adam and Eve who agreed to eat the forbidden fruit were turned together out of paradise, so Ananias and Sapphira who agreed to tempt the Spirit of the Lord, were together chased out of the world. You know, there's a lot of people who ask, were they Christians? We don't know, do we? We don't know. They may well, may well have been true believers, taken to heaven that quickly by God. Or maybe they weren't. In life together, in death together. Now listen, this is important. Surely Sapphira wishes she would have refused to go along with her husband's sin. Wives, listen carefully. Wives, listen carefully. Surely Sapphira wishes she would have refused to go along with her husband's obvious sin. Satan entered Ananias. Ananias conceived this sin. Ananias is the one who led in this sin. But she was aware she agreed, she participated, she lied to the apostles and to God as well. And what I want to emphasize to us here and to note clearly is that a wife's duty to submit to her husband can never be used as an excuse for her to sin. Wives, you are independent moral agents before God. And if your husband tries to lead you into sin, you are to lovingly refuse to go with him. The good wife would have lovingly refused, lovingly refused to go along with Ananias. And if he persisted in this evil nonsense, she would have probably been wise at that point. There would have been other options, but it would have been wise for her at that point to take her husband to the apostles for discipline if needed. Maybe she could have saved both of their lives if she had understood what to do, how to do right, and done it. But her heart was 
apparently given over to the same vice as her husband. She wanted to look good in the eyes of others. And I'll just say here, in passing, we're going to get to it. There are some teachings out there that you might hear that would say that a woman, as long as she just does what her husband says, is that she's obeying God. And I'm speaking directly contrary to that and pointing to this text as the example of that. Okay? And there's other examples in Scripture. So what's the result? Well, the Holy Spirit through Luke wants us to hear this twice. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Again, we're told of the result. But this time the great fear is not only upon all who heard these things, but particularly great fear came upon all the church. Let me ask you, do you want that for foothills? Do you want this great terror of who God is to be in our midst? And in the midst of his church throughout this entire world. Surely any self-aware hypocrites like the buried schemers would, would have been terrified to go on in their pretense and their lies in such a place as that. But even other believers not given over to falsehood and pretense would have been more careful in self-examination. Can't you see that? More cautious about checking their motives. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. Maybe I shouldn't go to worship today. This is the kind of thing that the fear of God brings into our mind and heart. We need to be terrified of our God so that we can find the true, the true comfort and joy of the cross. You cannot know the joy of the cross until you know the terror of standing before this holy God and finding yourself before him with no one to defend you. May we all have this experience. You see, as a Christian, we're meant to have this experience, not just once at the beginning of our salvation, but over and over again as his people, finding ourselves terrified at his feet and his glory over and over again. Before Jesus, in the book of Revelation, John did what? He fell down like he was dead. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that if we could be in the unveiled presence of God, we would all fall down as dead. And this is what God is doing in situations like this. He's unveiling his glory to the world through actions like this. May it be so today again. Amen. May he do this again. May he begin more and more to unveil that which keeps us from seeing heaven. And his power be revealed in this earth. His glory be revealed in this earth. <clears throat> Great fear should also come upon us today who hear these things. The commentary says, the great fear is more than reverent awe. We saw the same phrase in verse 5. Even for the believers, it involves this distressing apprehension that God has intervened in judgment. The alarming realization that he may do so again in other cases of deception. 
and the terrifying trepidation that one's own life might be in jeopardy because of sins that one has committed. Luke specifies that not only outsiders were gripped with fear, but also the whole congregation. Luke uses the term ecclesia, ecclesia, here for the first time to designate the congregation of believers in Jesus. So the church is going ahead in, in such beautiful stories we've seen bit by bit of what God has been doing in the book of Acts. Moving ahead, persecuted. Moving ahead. And then comes this story. And it presents another threat to God's church. The first threat to God's church is a lack of unity. Jesus fixed that when he taught the disciples during his 40 days, when he walked amongst them and brought them to one mind. And they needed the Holy Spirit to empower them. Jesus fixed their weakness and their fear and their cowardice through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. The threat of this world, the Jews, the Romans, they wanted to kill and stop, stop and kill if needed. This movement, they'd already killed Jesus. The same leaders had come against the church. And they had gone through that persecution. Another threat comes. Satan brings another way of tearing down God's church. And that's through false believers. And so really the first place to start by way of application is if you are a hypocrite, if you are a false believer, beware. Beware, your judgment day may not be in the future, it might be today. And so the first thing that the preacher has to do is to say to you, if you're a pretender, please, please see what happened. I plead with you to see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And remember that God has not changed. Please stop pretending. Confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to God. Become a true believer. Pray to God and confess your sins to Him and trust in the the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross for you. And be born again. Be filled with His Spirit. And rise up in confidence that God forgives you. And that He will walk with you and He will help you. Stop pretending. Now, maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but I just don't believe that's true of any of you. (laughs) But I have to preach that like it could be true of one of you, because only God knows what's going on in our hearts. All right, next. Thankful to the commentary uh, for some of these points of application. First of all, you understand that the church is the place of God's presence. It's not the only place, but it's a very special place of God's presence. So do you understand why Peter said that Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit? Did he really? I mean, he lied to the apostles. Can you understand? Do you see how it could be said that by doing that, he actually lied to God? And can you see how Sapphira tested the Holy Spirit? She was testing the leadership of the church, but she was testing God. Do you see what God has done in the earth by creating this institution that he calls 
the church, the visible church. Brothers and sisters, the church of the living God is not to be trifled with. Do you understand that the church is the place of God's presence? Do you grant the appropriate level of dignity to God's church? Not just, you know, your local church, but the church in general. When you speak of God's church, do you realize of what you're speaking? Especially if you're going to be critical of the church. Oh, be careful. All right, next. I want us to see, or I'll ask you this. Do you understand that God's presence brings both grace and judgment? Grace and judgment coexist in a healthy church. Do you understand that the church, the elect, they are forgiven and their eternal souls are saved? And there's a bunch of those here today. God's grace is upon us. And when evil works by deceived people entering God's church, he may bring swift judgment to those harming his bride. Or he may wait. He alone decides, and that should bring us great comfort. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing that we can do about those who would come into our midst and seek to harm our church. If they're hiding, if they're pretending, but God knows. And God will sort it out. Our job is to love one another. Our job is to serve one another in faithfulness, carrying out all the one another's. The Lord God will build his church. The Lord God will protect his church. That should bring us great comfort. Next, the leadership of the church needs to be concerned about sin in the congregation. Do you understand that faithful church leaders must watch out for your soul? For your good, for your good, and for the good of God's church. Do you understand that? It's for your good and for the good of God's church. And that the Lord uses this to bless you and to bless us all. We read it in Hebrews 13, that it may be profitable for you. And that we may all mature and that God would mature all of his church. And so we see that kind of interaction between a church leader and a church member in this text today. So I hope that you will give yourself more to the shepherding plan that's present in the church, that we would make those meetings take place uh, and that you would be proactive and pray for your church leaders to be proactive, to sit down and have these conversations and be able to pray for one another. And brothers and sisters, be sanctified together. Be sanctified together. We want to be more like Jesus, amen? Amen. Next, I hope you will see from today's text and texts to come in the future that the real church, the real church attracts people. A healthy church attracts people. Think about how they were caring for one another, all the physical needs that they had, and everyone was selling their goods, and they were taking care of each other. In addition, consider the power of God that was displayed. Remember how Herod was excited to be with Jesus because he wanted to see him do a miracle? Sometimes people are attracted to the church for the wrong reasons. But when a healthy church, when God is working in a healthy church and he's doing these things by his spirit and he has a thriving church, people are drawn to it. He's doing something that makes the world take notice. 
Next. Diabolical forces are always at work to harm God's church. I hope that you know that. Right? You should expect it. You should expect it now and every day. You should teach it to your children and your grandchildren. Okay? You just expect it. And do you understand that these forces of darkness are just another part of how God builds his church? You don't, you don't allow yourself to, to fret and, and do, do any hand-wreaking. Is, is the Lord Jesus Christ fretting over his enemies? <laughs> or are they getting his permission before they do anything? Right. It's a part of his plan to purify his bride and to grow us up in Christ is to sprinkle traitors in our midst, just like we learned about from Judas. May it not be so of any one of us. May it not be so of any one of us. But it is part of how God works in his church. And there's no church that's immune from this. This is how God does his thing. One of of the ways that God does his sanctifying work in his church. Do you understand that tares will always be amongst the wheat? Plus, don't fret about this. And I hope that you will praise God that he does his winnowing work in his due time. This is how he works. So the question is, how do you respond when you see God's church weak and corrupted and under attack? You know, it's easy to kind of fret, kind of get angry, maybe start saying or doing things ourselves to try to, but that's going to make things worse. I would propose to you that a deeply comforting reality is is this. The Lord will have his way with his enemies and he will bring forth great fear upon his church in due time. And your job, what your job is, is to make sure that you are one of those people who is under that fear. That that would be true of your, your soul, of your heart. That great fear would be upon you. That you would fear the Lord God. Finally, do you see how a bad husband can destroy his family? I mean, this family's destroyed. You see how a bad wife can join in and they can destroy their family together? So I hope you'll see this is a helpful scripture on marriage. And it teaches us uh, some important principles. Particularly, it reveals the limits on submission and limits on authority. It's always, it's always in the Lord. Submission is always in the Lord. There's no authority on this planet that has unquestionable authority. Only God and His Word go unquestioned. No husband has that kind of authority. No pastor has that kind of authority. No presbytery has that kind of authority. No diocese. No governor. No legislature. No employee. Nobody on earth has that kind of authority. And so anyone who tries to teach you that any authority on earth is, is, can properly go unquestioned, they're misleading you. And they're not understanding. 
that every authority on this planet must submit itself to God's word. And if it does not, it is acting improperly. Okay? And particularly when it comes to marriage, wives, it's this simple. Your husbands cannot command you to sin. Husbands, you cannot command your wife to sin. Simple, right? But it needs to be said. And sometimes you might disagree. Maybe the wife might think, well, I think that might be sin. And the husband's like, well, I don't think it is. You know what you do then? You get help. (laughs) You get help. You talk to your counselors. Maybe you table the decision. You pray about it some more. But you don't press forward in that. All right? You treat that conscience as the tender, beautiful thing that it is. Praise be to God for his word to us. And ultimately, finally, may the fear of God rest upon each and every one of us. And may we be filled with joy in knowing that Jesus has died and washed away our sins. And as we trust in him, we are his beloved children, safe in his arms forever and ever. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you and thank you, Lord. It's, it's mysterious to us, Lord, that, that at the same time we can be terrified of you and also run in, into your arms, and yet we know this is true. You are our God, the creator of all things, and there's no one like you. Your power and your glory and your holiness are beyond our comprehension now and into all eternity. And you are near to us. And you condescend to us. And you comfort us. And you console us in our weakness. And you have died for our sins. And you are Abba Father. And we praise you once again today, O God. Oh, we praise you. And we pray, Lord God, that we would have a balanced perspective of who you are. The holy, holy, thrice holy God of the universe who is a consuming fire. And our Father who loves us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen.